Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. Today, we're talking with Lee McAdam, who is the founder of the outdoors blog, Hike, Bike, Travel, as well as an award-winning photographer and an author of Discover Canada, among other books. Hi, Lee. Hello there, Richard. We're both stuck here in Calgary, itching to get out traveling. And I know a question I get asked a lot, uh, and which, which you must get asked a lot as well, is people want to get involved in travel in, in some way. And I think you have a really interesting career path as a travel blogger, as an author, how did you get into into this career? It's an interesting way that I got here because we have a company and we still have the company. Uh, we sell equipment for groundwater monitoring. It's not my love. It certainly pays some bills and I'm still involved with it in a minor way. But we had a U.S. company way back in the day and we sold that company and that's the one I'd been working for. And so when we sold it, you know, I, I was sort of betwixt and between for a little while. And then I woke up one night and I was like, ah. I'll write guidebooks about travel, like no clue about anything. But that's just, that was my first idea. And so back in like 2009, 2010, I started my first blog and it would be like most of those blogs are long gone because they're embarrassingly bad. You know, so I, this is not what I would recommend to everybody as a path towards success because I really didn't have writing skills, photography skills, no marketing skills. You know, I just jumped in, um, but I did jump in at a good time. And so that's probably what helped me. And then, you know, over time, the more you write, the better you tend to get at writing. I took photography classes up my, uh, just the level of what I could do and put out there. And then, you know, years later, I, you know, I certainly have a name or in the niche, in the outdoor travel niche, especially in Canada, but that's not to say it's been an easy ride by any means. And there are many times I would just like to have thrown in the towel and say, screw it. So what are some of those times where you're just like, what am I doing? I want to give up. This is not the right fit. When Google makes an algorithm change. <laughs> Anytime they do that, I, I, I usually feel like giving up. And then I think, you know, when you've worked hard and then you're not getting the results that you've wanted because it's an ever-evolving space and just the way blogs are done now versus the way they were done 10 years ago is 100% different. And then the whole social media thing, I mean, it's sort of a love-hate affair with me and I, you know, sometimes it's wonderful, but I don't like how you have to be on it as much as you do to really <clears throat> keep current. And, you know, I don't feel like I get away from my blog to the extent that I would like to. Hence my trips in the summer off the beaten path where there is no Wi-Fi. <laughs> um, that, that's my sanity saver is just completely unplugging, hopefully for a week or two at a time. But, uh, you know, it's just ever evolving, ever changing. I'm a one woman organization, I should say. Um, so there's a lot to do. And I feel like if maybe if I was part of a couple travel blogger, you could... You know, someone could be doing the writing, someone could be doing the back end, someone else is doing the photography. Like there's just so many different aspects to doing the blog these days that I think it's more difficult than it was when I started. It's funny you mention all these because uh, there's a couple YouTube channels I watch a lot of. Uh, ironically, they're Canadians out doing hiking and, and whatnot. 
And uh, recently one of them mentioned, um, you know, just how hard it was to, you know, be, be putting out a video once or twice a week. And, you know, he wasn't, you know, really active on, on social media anymore. He wasn't even really active on Patreon. And it really had gone, you know, from something he loved into like a regular job. I think people don't realize that it's, it's hard to keep, you know, putting out content. Is that something you feel as well that sometimes you're doing stuff and you're thinking more about, I've got to document this and, and get the content and, and, and maybe you don't enjoy uh, some of your trips as, as much as you would if you're just doing it for fun? I think that's a fair statement, um, but I try not to lose that sense of wonder. I would say when I'm doing trips on my own versus a press trip, and I can do whatever I want on my time, on my own time frame, and I don't have to produce social media, though I usually do, but there's no pressure to produce it. It's an easier time. You, you know, there, there's flexibility in what you're doing. You're not on someone else's um, time schedule. So that's certainly an issue. However, on the press trip side of things, which I've done lots of over you know, like the last eight years, I mean, it, it's allowed me to travel the world to places that I would never have got to. So, you know, it's a two-edged sword. And I just think when you know, if you're getting really tired and fed up, you do need to step back and have that break. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, take a month or two off. Um, get away from social media. If you lose a few followers in that short period of time, but you come back with renewed energy, I think that's super important. You know, I think that's good advice for almost anything. If you're going to do something you don't, don't like it anymore, uh, if you can find a way to stop doing it, you know, you, you, you do get your energy back, you get your passion. And, you know, whether it's uh, an activity, a job, a, a hobby, it, it just sucks to do, to do something you don't love. I'm interested in this, the idea of press trips. Before I got into the, the travel realm, I didn't really know about press trips. So I'm sure there's lots of people that are like, you know, they, they don't realize, the, you know, the articles they're reading in newspapers and online uh, aren't just, you know, some typically aren't just somebody out exploring the world on their own. Can you maybe describe what a press trip entails? So um, let me just backtrack uh, just a little bit. So when I first started out, I was not ever on a press trip and I wasn't invited. So you have to get on the radar um, of what they're called DMOs, destination marketing organizations, like a Travel Alberta or a Destination BC, or a public relations company that is in the travel field. So once you're on their radar, that's when things start to happen. And I got on the radar after my first book came out, Discover Canada, and I was able to join an organization called TMAC, the Travel Media Association of Canada. And that's really what opened the doors for me because they have an annual conference. At that annual conference, you have about 20 or 25 uh, meetings with destinations from across Canada, but also from other parts of the world. And so over time, you really develop those relationships. And so, you know, like I am top of mind for some people when it comes to hiking or biking or paddling in the summer, it's like, oh, well, Lee would do something like that. It, they don't just appear although there are Facebook groups with press trips that you can join if you have the credentials. But um, you, you have to work and put out enough material to look like you, 
you deserve to be on these trips, right? And so over time, I have been on, invited on more and more of them and um, to really all over the world, um, primarily, obviously, in Canada the last few years and a lot fewer press trips. So press trips can be anything. They can be like a, just a two-day thing. They can be a week long, two weeks long. So as an example, one of the press trips I did was with Parks Canada. And I went. Um, they flew me from Calgary up to actually Inuvik in the Northwest Territories via Whitehorse. You know, had a night in Whitehorse, a night in Inuvik, and then we flew to Herschel Island, which is in the Arctic Ocean, and eventually to Ivavik National, and I always spell that, uh, pronounce that word incorrectly, Ivavik National Park, right in the northwest corner of the Yukon, um, where it borders Alaska. I was one of perhaps just three or four people that was invited on this trip. Once we got to the actual base camp setup, which the public can go and sign up to do, you know, we had a cook, we had a cultural host, we had uh, national park guides who took us out hiking every day. Like I'm a good fit with a Parks Canada trip. And the expectations when I'm on a trip like that without any Wi-Fi are actually great because I don't have to produce Instagram stories or Instagram feeds. I don't have to do Facebook posts. I have to do nothing because there is no Wi-Fi. So for a week, I basically had a week with no Wi-Fi. So that's the beauty of a trip to the real wilderness. However, most press trips, when I get on a plane, I am on the minute I get on the plane because I am thinking about that trip and I'm looking at what my deliverables are. Sometimes deliverables are like five to seven stories and Instagram posts, Facebook and Twitter every day while you're on the trip and then perhaps photos and a blog post afterwards along with more sharing of what you've produced. So it's a job and I think it's a great job. I, I mean, never get me wrong about that. It is a cool job. I get to do really awesome, awesome things. But it is 100% a job. And when I'm on a trip, my day often starts at like 6 or 7, and I don't finish till 11. Like you, when you're trying to produce content like that, it can be hard work. Hence my love for going on trips where there is no Wi-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as you mentioned this, uh, Ivavik National Park, I Googled it and it just looks incredible. It's right beside the uh, Alaskan Arctic National Refuge. And uh, uh, that would be an incredible trip. But but you're right. You're being uh, hosted on these trips and, and you're going from dawn till dusk. It is work. Sometimes I've set up meetings with people. So you have to be on. You have to be, you know, taking your notes and taking the pictures. And even if you're not interested in everything you're doing, you have to fake it. You have to make it look like you're interested in everything you're doing. It's really super well organized. And other times, it's a shit show, is the bottom line. <laughs> not very often, but occasionally it is. And then sometimes you're just left hanging. And, and um, those are the groups that you never go on again. I think bloggers get blacklisted, but also some agencies and, and DMOs get blacklisted too on the other side. You mentioned that some of them aren't super exciting. I've noticed, you know, a few people I know that are in this industry over the pandemic, they've been exploring, you know, rural Ontario or, you know, someplace in Manitoba. And I'm thinking, oh, I think that would be a really tough, uh, really tough place to write about because it doesn't look, you know, they're doing their best to make it look good, but it's just going up to the Northwest Territories or going, you know, someplace exotic. 
is really easy, but some of these small towns or small regions, I think, are really tough to write about. You can always say no to a press trip, and I, I certainly do that. And, you know, once things open up again, I think there will be a huge need for uh, destinations to showcase what they've got in sort of the new normal. But it's also, it's tricky not to get overbooked. And there was a time, this is this is probably the craziest thing I've ever done, is I was invited as part of the Adventure Travel Trade Association to go to Hokkaido, Japan. And that trip was about a week long. I came back for 36 hours and then I went on a press trip to Jordan. So I don't need to do that very often. So I'm really interested in, you know, you've obviously been all over the world. What are some of the greatest trips you've done uh, as part of your career? Um, well, that one in the in the Yukon was pretty darn fantastic. Um, a couple of years ago, I was invited to La Paz in, in Mexico. And uh, part of that trip was swimming with the whale sharks. And I have to say that was a huge thrill. I mean, those are the world's giant, um, largest fish. And they have mouths that look like they can swallow you. And they don't swim very quickly, but either do I. Therein lies the problem, right? You're only you're not supposed to get close to the head or the tail, and it's like, ah, oh, there's the fish. <laughs> um, and it's done in an ethical manner. I mean, it's very, very closely monitored. Um, fun, thrilling, exciting, all of those things. Going to Hokkaido, Japan, was out of this world, and it was true culture shock. You know, the moment I stepped off the plane in Tokyo, it was like, oh my gosh. And you know, you're on your own when you're traveling like that. And I had someone meet me at the airport and he's directing me to the train to get to the hotel. And you can't read anything. You can't understand a thing. And it's not very often I'm out of my element, but holy smoke, was I ever out of my element there. <laughs> but from there, like we, um, then we flew to Sapporo and then further north into Hokkaido. And we went up to um, one of the national parks. And one of the things we did was called drift ice walking. And so it's, it's drift ice that's come over from Russia. And it comes over every year in the winter. And you, you put on your wetsuits. And then we went swimming in the ocean in, in among the drift ice. And it was just one of those otherworldly experiences that was so cool. And then after that, you go get naked and go hop in one of those onsen hot springs. <laughs> like the first time I went was at like 5.30 in the morning when I knew there'd be nobody there. That was just one of, um, an, just a whirlwind of incredible experiences that I had in, in Hokkaido. You know, we went skiing at one of the resorts and that's an area that is known for its snowfall. And I don't know, there was just something absolutely magical. And part of it was the sunny day, but there was no one on the hill. It was everything, you had to rent equipment. It was completely organized the way you think the Japanese organize things, like to the T, um, just magical. And the whole week-long trip uh, was a complete and utter delight and makes me want to go back and explore more. Back when I was an early blogger, there were a lot of bloggers that were invited to Jordan, and I was just so jealous, so envious. You know, I'd look at the pictures of Petra and um, the Red Red Rock City and and Wadi Rum, which is the desert with Lawrence of Arabia um, kind of scenes. And it's just like, oh, one day I want to go there. One day I would love to be invited there. And it was actually on a bike trip that um, is how I uh, traveled through a bike and a bus through Jordan. And we did the Dead Sea and we did we visited Petra, which really was a magical spot. 
But I think the best of all was Wadi Rum and just being out in the desert, um, just this great expanse with inky black skies and starry nights and, you know, the Bedouin culture. And it was a very interesting, different experience that I've had anywhere else in the world. And then on top of that, one day my husband and I, after we'd finished with the cycling part of the trip, we... Uh, went and hired a fellow to drive us to this wetland preserve in the northern part of Jordan. It was very interesting to see uh, one direction if you drove, you'd go to Iraq, and the other direction, you'd go to Saudi Arabia. And you know, those are just mythical countries in my mind. <clears throat> and so to actually see it and think that you're only, you know, a half an hour drive from the border um, is what keeps the romance of travel alive with me. I can imagine. I, I love the history of when you're in a place and thinking back to, you know, 100 years ago or 200 years ago and having read books of explorers in that area. It always feels really special to be in these places that have been important for such a long time. You know, I used to collect stamps as a kid, which my family makes fun of. But I think it actually did give me a, an interest in, in geography and in the world. And so it's always a thrill, especially on continents, to hit a continent for the first time. I remember going to Nepal and it's like, oh my gosh, I'm in Asia. How cool is this? You know, it's just, you know, I just was in awe of where I traveled. And I've had that bug since I was a kid. You know, like it's, I don't know how you get the travel bug. I find that an interesting question in itself because I came from a family where my parents didn't travel um, and didn't do cool things. And you kind of go like, why me? <laughs> and I'm not sure. I think that's just an interesting question to figure out why some people really are drawn to it. Yeah, no, and it is like, I don't think it is nature or nurture because in our family, my brother hates traveling. My sister and I love traveling and we all had the same upbringing and very similar, you know, DNA, you know, as you have with, with parents. But yeah, it's just one of those things, you know, it, it just travel hits some people and, and, and doesn't doesn't hit others. I'm interested, you, you mentioned earlier about starting this, you know, 2009. Do you think it's gotten easier to be a travel blogger or harder to be a travel blogger uh, since you started? You mentioned their algorithm changes and, you know, that's another thing if it, you don't realize unless you're a traffic-based company that Google's constantly tweaking their algorithm. And those algorithms, sometimes they benefit you, sometimes they don't. It seems that one of their focuses now is to really default to authority, which means it's kind of like the, the big do better. Uh, it's good for 10 Adventures because we've been around long enough and our content's been around long enough and it's probably good for you as well. But I do wonder for new companies that are or, or new entities that are starting now, they don't have that authority status that they've been around and they have, you know, lots of users already, lots of visitors already, where I feel like there's more and more barriers to entry. At the same time, there's a lot more people that are doing it because, you know, getting a WordPress theme or some followers on social is, is becoming, you know, easier, easier and easier that, you know, the technical side is, is largely gone. And in a sense, I worry because it, you know, having, you know, five big hiking sites, I don't know if that's good or bad as a whole. When we started, there was like every region had its own kind of like default hiking site that, 
there was kind of, you know, there was all trails. I think at that point it was called trails.com, but every place we looked, there was like a little local, you know, Yellowstone site, a little local glacier site. And there was uh, here in the Rockies, there was a, a company called Trails Peak that, you know, was number one in Google. And uh, I looked about a year ago and a lot of those companies are now gone. It's, you know, there's a couple big companies uh, in some of the places, it's Tend Ventures that's kind of taken over those um you know, the, the top places in Google, it's interesting just to see like the evolution of a whole bunch of, you know, kind of unconsolidated small uh, outdoor sites to, you know, uh, fewer bigger sites. I would say it's not a, not a great time unless you're really committed and you're really passionate to try and get into outdoors blogging or, you know, outdoors, uh, anything that's going to rely on organic Google traffic, because it seems it's only going to get harder as time goes on. I thought I knew SEO, but apparently I didn't. If anyone was going to jump in, they would really have to understand search engine optimization to its max, like take courses so that they really have it down to a fine art. And then, you know, there's this whole influencer thing, which is, you know, you're, you can be a blogger and an influencer. But I think what people don't realize is that so many people have bought followers too. And, you know, and, and sometimes sometimes they get away with it. I think I would say more often than not that they get away with um, not having organic growth. And that is the sort of thing that really bothers me. But for the people that are honest and really prepared to work hard and have a long-term view, they can probably still do all right. You know, it's not like a big ticket to make a lot of money unless you're prepared to put out really good, unusual content all the time. Don't you think? I would agree. I remember, um, I'm also a member, you mentioned earlier, the Adventure Travel Trade Association and go to their uh, annual global summits. And I met an influencer there and uh, he mentioned, you know, they, he had, or his company or his organization had 50,000 Instagram followers. I thought, oh, this is pretty good. And I went on his Instagram. I'm like, yeah, he does have 50,000, but this content is like, it's really, really bad. And I started looking at the content. They each had like two likes and six likes. And I thought, how do you have 50,000 followers if no one actually like on Instagram it's like you know the the algorithm especially then but even now you can still get lots of likes on Instagram because that's kind of what the tool is is kind of like still used for but I thought this guy's just bought a whole bunch of followers I think and you know that's more the norm than one would think and I think having a daughter who works in PR who has to go through and look at people and decide if they're worthy of being um, invited on various things. Um, there are tools to do that, but it's just like, it's, it's a shame that that's not called fraud because that's really what it is. It's fraud. You're not really the person that you're, um, so I'm not sure that everyone would agree with me on that, but if you're buying something, I could go out and buy 10,000 um, Facebook followers today for like 20 bucks. It would make me look like I was better than I really am. It, it is an issue. I, I agree. So we've talked a lot about the past. I'm really interested about the future. I love talking with people who are interested in travel, that love to travel. COVID's slowing down. It looks like, you know, this stage of the pandemic, it, it might be, you know, getting better. But with, the, you know, with uh, COVID, you, you never know. As we uh, record this, there's a, a war in Ukraine. Uh, so that's a new thing to deal with. So there is still, even though COVID's getting better, there is still uncertainty now with, you know, what's going to happen with um uh, geopolitical issues. Um, but let's say everything goes back to normal and, and you know, somehow COVID stays normal and uh, the Ukraine uh, situation is resolved. What are you most excited for to kind of get as life gets back to normal? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm still thinking very much in Canadian terms for this coming summer, um, just to keep it simple. And I'm glad I am at this stage of the game. For this summer, I'm going to hike the East Coast Trail in Newfoundland over a couple of weeks. So I am very excited to be doing that. And I have a couple of paddling trips, and one in Ontario and one on the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia. But when I look further afield, I get oh, super excited about going back to Europe since I haven't been there in a couple of years. And when COVID had hit, I had booked um, a trip to the Lofoten Islands in Norway and the Kunsleden um, hiking trail in Sweden. I'm not going to do that this year, but that is 100% on the books for next year. And I figure, well, if I'm going to Europe for two weeks, why not go for four weeks or six weeks and knock off some of these other hikes that I really would love to do? So there are a few. There's one um, in Corsica. It's supposed to be the hardest hike, um, the Grand Randonnées. I think it's the GR20. And uh, one of the hardest hikes in Europe. And I'm thinking, I better do this before I get too old because it's 14 days of really, really tough hiking. And another one that has uh, humongous appeal, again, a really tough one, is on the west coast of Greenland. And I don't think people understand that, you know, Greenland is not just snow and ice. It's actually got these, uh, it looks like lovely uh, mountains that are covered in green and they've got lakes. And there's a 10-day trip called the Arctic Circle Trail. That one is also on the list uh, sooner rather than later. So those are, those are and you know, actually, if, if Ukraine does simmer down and sort of that whole region of Albania, Romania, Poland, Slovakia, like some of the hiking in those mountains that I have I've never, I haven't visited those countries. So there's tremendous appeal to go and, and visit the, those range of mountains. Everything you've said is actually on my bucket list as well. Uh, and it, it's funny, actually, uh, last year, uh, my wife and I, we, you know, booked a lot of trips, you know, I had trade shows I was supposed to go to at the end of the year, and we didn't do any of them. They were all international. We ended up doing lots of, you know, backpacking, camping, skiing, snowshoeing. This year, we said, okay, for this summer, let's just book everything in Canada and just do a ton of backpacking, hiking, and just not even worry about the stress of if things are going to get back to normal or not. If things look good, we'll go some, you know, we'll go someplace in, in autumn. But uh, very, very similar to you, just, you know, take take the stress of will it happen or won't it happen and just, just do something really easy where we know it'll happen. And actually, we got tons of great backpacking routes, and our whole family's really excited. So 2022 will be, uh, actually 2021 was a great summer. Uh, 2022 will be a great summer as well for us. Well, I, I did the same thing with backpacking. You know, I've booked something in Banff for the summer as well. I've booked the Silhouette Trail in Ontario in Killarney Provincial Park for a week of hiking. And then there are a lot of trails, you know, part of it is, you know, you're booking a reservation. You never know what the weather's going to do. So I'm um, more and more interested in what trails um, I can backpack where I don't need a reservation. And one of them is on your website. That has tremendous appeal. And it is the one where you go up to Nigel Pass and then you head up Cataract Canyon. I knew you were going to say this one. I have that booked in, in September, I think. Well, and then, then you get into the white, what is it, the white goat wilderness area. And then you don't have to worry. Everything's wild camping at that point. And it's like, oh, completely fantastic. So that one is 100% on my list this summer. And there's some down in southern Alberta, too, where you, you know, there's some really good stuff in the castle area. And you don't need any permits down there. All you'd have to do is show up. So you can show up when it's a nice weekend. You know, how many things got canceled last year because of smoke? 
And if it wasn't smoky, it was like 35 degrees. It is nice to be able to just be completely spontaneous and, and take off for a couple of days. One thing that I noticed that's really interesting is, you know, here in, in Western Canada, we see all of our campgrounds, you know, it wasn't, it's not just the pandemic, pre-pandemic, the last probably 10 years, it's become increasingly difficult to get campsites booked. You know, you have to go midweek and, you know, not not your optimal dates, not not the campsite but it's not just here in Western Canada, it's actually global that, you know, everyone's starting to realize, not everyone, but it's rapidly increasing the number of people that are realizing just how great the outdoors are. And uh, I remember seeing a, a study, I think it was done by the Adventure Travel Trade Association, where a Horseshoe Canyon down in, um, in Arizona, you know, it used to have 10,000 visitors a year. And now it has days where it has 10,000 visitors a day. And it literally did that jump in one decade. We see it here with, you know, Moraine Lake, you know, used to be able to show up there at 8 a.m. And, and, and get a, you know, or 8.30, get a parking spot on a, on a weekend. And now people go there, you know, camp out at 4 a.m. Uh, I was quite lucky. I got the Skokie Loop this summer. Um, but I've been trying to get that for the last two years and it's, it's been hard and, you, you know, there kind of is a revolution. People are like, let's get back to the outdoors. Let's go and, you know, turn our phones off, you know, get our hearts beating, get some fresh air where it's, it's kind of great. This is happening on the flip side. It's getting really hard. And as you said, there are still places you can go to, you know, I have a lot of friends and they keep saying, go into the Kootenays, you know, go, go up uh, past Invermere because a lot of what the Rockies were like 20 years ago it's in these kind of less less visited less visited places. So, um, you know, th that's on my list of of where I want to get to. But it's it's just the way the world is. People want to spend time outdoors and explore, and um, we don't have the facilities, and and most places don't have the facilities to to handle that. Well, and don't you wonder, like, are they like are parks or governments going to keep up with that kind of demand? You know, are, will Alberta parks? add more camp spots you know uh, they in my mind they've actually made it more difficult if you're having the backcountry experience this summer because you can book three months out but only every you know to the day so you can't book a multi-day backpacking trip unless you're online every single day for as long as you want to have your trip so sometimes i feel like oh, there's a disconnect between government and what's happening on the ground what about putting money into uh, not beautifying but just upkeep of some of these backcountry campsites and one to your point like baker lake and the skokie loop is a fantastically beautiful area to go and visit but when i did that trip the campsites like really if it had rained they'd be in a mud pool and you know that for the amount of money that we're all putting into these reservations and the campsite rentals, you would think that we could just get a, a few more tent pads around that were a little bit better. I have good news. Uh, we did the Sawback uh, Trail from Lake Louise down to Banff last year, and they rehabbed every single campground, and it was incredible. Uh, but you do raise an issue here in Alberta in our in our provincial park system. Uh, I've Last year's I basically said I, we just can't go to them. The, the, the reservation system they have, the price of, um, of campsites, and then there's been no work done to any of them. And so, you know, the facilities are still the same ones they had back in the 80s. Whereas I know in Yoho, they've done a big renovation of the Kicking Horse Campground. They've done a massive renovation in Jasper of the campgrounds. They're replacing washrooms throughout Banff National Park. So I feel like 
the national park system actually is, you know, making some some long needed uh, changes. Ironically, we have to pay this new park pass here in, in Alberta, and we aren't seeing anything. Just you know, this new system where I never find any availability. Like I basically can't can't go camping in in our own provincial parks because of the system. So it's so hard, isn't it? And it's frustrating, and it's not always user friendly. And some of sometimes I wish the the computer programmers would take somebody who is new to going on the site and go through it with them so that they really understood where the issues were. I mean, that's an aside, but it is frustrating. And that's why, you know, the, the more places you can find where you don't really have to think about um, permits or the or the, even just the fees, like the David Thompson Highway, there's lots of crown land. And what is it? I think it's 20 or $30 per year now. And that gives you the right for car camping and backcountry camping. Well, that's completely affordable. But some of these campsites are now like $41 and then a reservation fee on top of that. So they're starting, you know, for a week long trip, they're getting up there where they used to be, you know, it's like a $50 outing. It's now a $400 outing. It's definitely going up. My last question is, you know, so many people want to, you know, become an outdoors influencer or a blogger, you know. Think back to when you first started. What are some tips you wish you could have given yourself uh, or some tips you can just give to somebody out there listening that is really interested in this as a career? Well, I think to be authentic. I mean, you have to be yourself. You know, I'm not 20 years old with the perfect body, but that, you know, that still seems to work. Or <laughs> Thank heavens. Part of it is like I, I'm still brands still reach out to me to try and showcase some of their products and if it's a fit i'd love to do it um because you know i, I use that those types of clothing or boots or snowshoes or whatever it happens to be on a regular basis so you you have to be on brand when you say yes as well and you know just because it's it's given to you free of charge and i put that in quotation marks because there's an expectation that you're going to do something with it um is that make sure that it's a fit. But how do you grow that? And that's the tougher question. Because I think, you know, on Instagram, you need to have a presence, you probably need to be doing something very creative and something a little bit different than everybody else. And that's getting harder and harder to do. If you are the original thinker, and put out great content before getting paid for it, people will notice that eventually. And the other way is just tagging people and not stalking them, but tagging them on a regular basis and just trying to draw their attention to you because it's such an overloaded world. Um, you know, there's, what do we have, a three-second, five-second attention span? So how do you get people to notice you? And so great content, authentic um, tagging people, I think those would be helpful hints, but they're not going to be the be-all the end-all. Knowing people in PR, putting yourself out, actually contacting um, public relations agencies if you think you are a good fit with what they may have would also be a, another way to go. One thing you said there, but you didn't include it in your list, was do great work. And so, you know, be authentic, be original, but but do something that's useful. I know one thing at 10 Adventures we've always tried to is is focus on like, how do we give route guides that people can use? How can we do something that people actually need? Because ultimately, if you do, if you help people solve their problems, then they're going to come back and use you know you come to your site again because they 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 like what you're doing. I mean, we're hearing it over and over again. But be kind, be useful. Don't expect to get paid for everything. You know, there's nothing wrong with help. Like I do try and help people. If uh, you know, there are lots of new bloggers out there, and 
I have got on the phone with them and given them an hour of my time of, you know, all the things I think that they can do. I feel good about doing that. So it's like giving back and, you know, I, I do think there's karma out there and what goes around comes around. And so just try and be that better person. And if you have said yes to something, you know, appreciate that there are deadlines and that, you know, if you meet those deadlines, everyone will be a lot happier with you. You know, just some basics with your work ethic. I think that um, speaks volumes too. If you want to know more about Lee, you can obviously check out hikebiketravel.com as well as find her on social under Hike Bike Travel. So Lee, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks. It's been a real pleasure, Richard, to uh, chat with you. I could, we could probably chat all day if we could get into the nitty gritty of where to go. Uh, I know. I love talking travel with people that are out there doing, doing this stuff. Uh, so it's been fun just to travel vicariously thinking about where you're going and, and you know, where, where my dreams are taking me in the future as well. Well, maybe we'll meet in Greenland. <laughs> or, or at some, you know, Venture Travel Trade Association event, because I suspect we've probably been in the same room a couple times, but just didn't know each other. Uh, and with that, thanks for listening to the episode. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures, why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure. Oh,